Fundamentally, it comes down to retention, average value order, commercial targets, and I guess customer volume. And each business, I look on those four axes and I evaluate where are they compared to where they want to go and is there enough validation that that's true. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Market Mentors podcast. I'm Matt Dodgson, co-founder of Market Recruitment, and we connect B2B tech and SaaS businesses with marketers to help them grow. This week, we are joined by Oren Greenberg. Oren is founder and partner of Curve, a growth marketing agency for enterprise tech brands and well-funded startups. He also works as an advisor for ambitious tech brands, and today we're going to be talking about how he and his team helped Kite scale. So we've got lots to learn from. I hope you enjoy. So welcome to the Market Mentors podcast, Oren. Yeah, oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get stuck into this one, I'd love to know a little bit more about you. Sure. So I've been working as a fractional on-demand CMO for the last few years. And before that, I worked for a fair few VC-backed businesses. I've kind of always been on this cusp of digital marketing and growth marketing, helping businesses crack customer acquisition and retention and upsell, cross-sell. And I straddle both B2C and B2B. I've been doing it for about 20 odd years now. All those tough challenges that our audience will be tackling themselves. We're here to sort of talk about your experience and the work that you did for Kite. But just for context for the audience then, what do they do as a business? I think the simplest way to define that is print on demand. This is quite an interesting innovation in printing. The target audience was primarily Shopify store owners and influencers. You're branding your merch, it's a hat or a t-shirt. You know, when you go to seminars and people give you the pens and the cups with the logos, you've been doing that for many years now. And obviously with the advent of technology and changes in print, you know, and this rise of the influencer, you know, I mean, you've always had celebrities, right? And actors and famous people, but now... You have micro-influencers, you know, people with 50,000 or 200,000 followers who are really highly engaged and passionate about that topic or that person. This term, the creator economy, which is growing very rapidly and this rise in solopreneurs, they want to monetize, right? They're spending a lot of time creating content, spending time engaging with their audience. You know, a lot of them would like to ideally make a living out of that and selling merch is one of those avenues of revenue generation. Swag, isn't it? I think people call it as well. Yeah, swag. That was the word I was looking for. You see it a lot in the American tech companies sending out swag to their big customers. So if I was an influencer or a Shopify owner, what would I be doing if I wasn't using Kite then? Would I be just going down my local print shop, if you like? You'd probably be using one of the competitors, most likely. Mm. It's a very hot area with a few key players. Again, became complicated because Shopify actually bought out one of the largest players in that space. So it's an interesting duality. I don't really know what people's alternative was. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of local t-shirt printing companies and there's mass manufacturing. I think the innovation was really fundamentally around APIs, right? And the mass sending of data, Mm. mass orders without any of that manual labor-intensive complexity. And the key was not only, I guess, automation fundamentally, but also maintaining a certain standard of quality. Mm. You know, nowadays, 
people have expectations similar to B2C, even though this technically is B2B2C, right? It's like merch being sent to the influencer, being sent to the consumer. Mm. That influencer is effectively liable for the quality of the product that the consumer is buying through them. Mm. As you can imagine, for the influencer, it's very pertinent to find the right vendor. But also, there's a lot of questions around the volume, quality, price, bespoke, right? Like how tailored does it need to be? There's a lot of variables that go into this process. It's quite intricate. Also with merch, there isn't just T-shirts and hats. There's a lot of different SKUs, SKUs, right? So different lines of products that you could be printing on. And that adds additional complexity because of inventory. And at the end of the day, it's complex. You've got to print something in a factory in a developing country. You've got to stick that on a plane or a boat. You've got to ship that over. Someone has to manage the order. They have to ship it to the consumer's house. There's a lot of moving parts, the supply chain, that make this intricate. Mm. And what was Kite's marketing team set up then? So they originally brought me on as a outsource CMO, and I built the whole marketing function using agencies and freelancers. So it was entirely outsourced, which is unusual. I mean, a lot of businesses I support are hybrid. Mm. They have some internal resource. It varies. You know, some businesses, there's a marketing director or a VP of growth, a head of growth that I support, and others, they have more junior talent, the earlier stage, and just, you know, more advisory setting. So, so I have a few different flavors. For some businesses, I was running projects like this, where you're building an entire team. You know, I curated and filtered out people through my network, and I was effectively doing what an in-house CMO would do, but I was just fractional. I was only doing it part-time, effectively. Makes sense, makes sense. And why were you specifically brought on them? What were they looking to achieve through you and your services? So Canon bought them out and invested in scaling them. And it was part of this whole huge project that Canon was running at about 340 people. And Kite was one of those incubated businesses I was supporting. And effectively, the person who brought me in and introduced me to the person who was leading this whole, I guess, in-house venturing, they needed the expertise I think the mothership, the marketeers there were focused on the core brand. Mm. They didn't have the bandwidth to really focus on it. I think there was also like cultural nuances. You know, when you're in a rapidly scaling business, it's very different than someone who's working in an established business in terms of process, systems, thinking, team structure. Mm. They needed speed, but they needed expertise. That model kind of had its own momentum and materialized. And mm. Overall, it was an impressive result considering the setup. It's unusual to have such a heavily outsourced entire function of the business, a core function, and for it to actually work better than a lot of in-house teams I've seen, which is quite interesting, because it was very tight. Mm. And thinking about their model then, you were brought on to obviously drive growth then, but we're talking about sort of app installs then, are we? Are we talking about sort of activation of that product? And then obviously people actually using it. So it's almost a bit like a product-led type of go-to-market. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, fundamentally, it's an interesting hybrid of in product marketing speak, PQLs, product qualified leads, and e-commerce. Because at the end of the day, the revenue was a rev share between the influencer and Kite's margin on that supply chain and the software layer. Mm. And the more merch that was sold, the more money everyone made, right? So fundamentally, it was like the economics of an e-commerce store. Right? The more you sell, the more money you make. But it had this complexity because it wasn't B2C, it was B2B2C. Mm. So actually, we had these B2B-like relationships. But in a sense, it wasn't traditional B2B, which is longer sales cycles, right? Average sales cycle in B2B is like 84 days. 
Bunin have like the same high touch complexity with relatively lower volume. It was more like the hoot suites or buffer aspects of B2B where it was like higher volume and lower value per customer. But as with many of these things, a lot of the growth had come from the whales, right? People that had like 26 million followers on YouTube, right? And the amount of revenue that person was generating was more than 2,000 other stores combined, right? Because a lot of people were just installing Shopify and trying to hack it together because they read somewhere online about passive income. <laughs> you know, so you, you had like this really interesting variety of customers. Fundamentally, if we break down the funnel, it went from app install on Shopify to some sort of qualification of leads. So we still use MQLs, marketing qualified leads and sales qualified leads. And then we'd filter the qualification criteria into kind of self-serve and high touch, which goes to the sales team and, and kind of try and generate both simultaneously. So we got both quality and quantity, which enables the business to maximize scaling in the most efficient way possible. And did they set you any objectives to hit them? Were they talking about, okay, we want X amount of growth or X amount of MQLs, or did they leave it kind of up to you and giving you a kind of broad remit of help us grow sort of thing? No, definitely more KPIs and targets set kind of progressively became more aggressive, which is pretty typical for a lot of scale-ups. So yeah, there were revenue targets that we had to work towards to try and achieve. Mm. What was your first step then to helping them drive revenue? Yeah, I think all marketing functions need people because you need specialists to deploy to manage the different channels mm. they need to build the team we need to get this tech stack in place then i need to do the marketing hygiene you know confirming positioning confirming messaging confirming personas you know making sure that the fundamentals of the marketing strategy is in place and then go through that process of getting tracking in place and start the experimental process of producing creative, deploying it for different audiences, mm. testing different variants of copy and funnel options and lots of different gadgetries, you know, from chatbots to landing pages to all these different tools that we play around with. I think most marketeers, they're always trying to improve results by trying out different tools. And, mm. you know, this time chatbots were very hot. It was just kind of the advent of intercom and drift. And there was a lot of experimentation with that, for instance. But that came a bit after. But yeah, fundamentally, I need to get the people in and build a sprint-based approach to running experimentation on the digital channels and then relay that into coherent, simplified reporting for management and then relay what we're doing, what we're seeing, how we're thinking about it, what we're doing next, the challenges we're facing the obstacles that we have at hand and obviously keeping this within the context of product development that's happening in the tech team and the product team and also the competitive context, what are the other competitors doing and what are we seeing and how are we comparing? So there's a lot of moving parts Mm. to this engine. I'd say this is probably very familiar, hopefully, to any marketeer listening. No, indeed. A lot of marketeers will go into a new job in a sort of similar situation to how you were brought on to help Kite Do you sort of wipe the slate clean around things like personas and positioning and messaging? How much influence do you have on what's been done previously then? Fundamentally, it comes down to retention, average value order, commercial targets, and I guess customer volume. Mm. And each business, I look on those four axes and I evaluate where are they compared to where they want to go. And is there enough validation that that's true? I mean, at this point, 
they were doing significant revenue already monthly. They'd already had successful traction, existing customers, you know, not there to rock the boat and say, you know, you could be doing this better. They already effectively had validated product market fit. Mm. So I don't need to rock the boat there. With other businesses I come in and it's like the retention isn't great or the customer volume number is far off from target or, you know, their CAC cost of acquiring a customer compared to the customer value. ACV, annual contract value, LTV, lifetime value is way off. Mm. And then you're like, okay, look, something here in the hypothesis or the data you have isn't adding up to your targets or your goals. I need to revisit this and evaluate where is it going wrong. Because effectively, it's like a car with multiple components. And someone's saying, you know, we need to drive really, really far. You really want to make sure the car's in order and be able to get you to your destination. And I think the difference is, you know, someone brings you in and they're not really a car mechanic and they're saying, you know, I've checked the car myself. It's really good. I've got it to where it is. Let's just go. Mm. And you're a good car mechanic. You're not really going to just listen to someone who's not a car mechanic and kind of assume that they know what they're doing. Like, that's negligence. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, I don't go and check the car and sometimes go, oh, you did a really stellar job, actually. You consider being a professional mechanic, you know? <laughs> and then they go, oh, no, I used to run growth in my last business. I'm like, all right, okay, yeah, I missed that. You didn't share that. Mm. And then it makes sense as to why they're doing such a stellar job. Yeah. And that sometimes happens, but I'd say that's more the exception. I'd say a lot of the time, there's a lot of education around what building a brand actually means and how marketing actually operates. You have to explain that it's a process and a systemized methodological approach to this. It's more science and art. Mm. I have crazy stories. You know, one guy was telling me how his friend put the logo on the bottom of the shoe of a boxer and he thought the boxer was going to like, you know, get knocked out because he wasn't so strong and the cameras would capture it and the brand would go big and it kind of went off. And he's like, can you do something like that for us? Can you growth hack it? I just said, that's not marketing. I said, you know what the probability of something going viral is statistically? He said, what is it? I said, it's one in 34,000. Yeah. You want me to take all your money and take a one in 34,000 punt? I mean, I wouldn't be comfortable someone doing that with all my money. You know, it's not professional. So sometimes you get that. That's like a really extreme example of someone who really doesn't get it yeah. or has unrealistic expectations. But a lot of the people there doing a lot of reading and self-learning and they're starting to understand the methodologies and the approaches for growth and a systematic approach. Well, there's so much information out there these days. So with Kite then, obviously you've got the sort of positioning, the messaging, the website all sort of working together. I guess then the next stage is sort of moving into those growth experiments. But before we sort of dig into those specifics then, what was your top level plan of attack or strategy then for Kite in particular? Not to kind of oversimplify it, but effectively... Good marketing is getting the right message, which talks to the pain point for that specific audience. Mm. So we had our different personas, our different audiences, we need to identify what channels they live in, that we needed to test these different messages that we believe talk to the core of their problems. Mm. You know, so you kind of do the customer research and you understand how people are thinking about the problem, then you use their language or repackage their language in a way that resonates with them to communicate. And fundamentally, it was, you know, how do you sell more merch and make more money was really the kind of basic one. Mm. But you can package that and massage it in lots of different ways to give it nuance for different audiences to make it more personalized. Effectively, the three core channels was approaching people at the Shopify store by the data set, you know, who's running a Shopify store, do some analysis on how much traffic they're getting, then reach out to them and have a conversation through social and cold outbound. Mm. The second core channel was Facebook ads because it was at that time easier to build custom audiences and target those creatives and the influencer types. 
And the third was Google Ads, because obviously it was search volume and people in a neat state, which would mean you know lower CPA, cost per acquisition, and a lower CAC, lower cost of acquiring a customer, because people who have higher intent tend to convert more cost-effectively because they're actually interested and actively looking for your solution. Mm. So those are the kind of three primary channels that I prioritize and I believe would deliver the growth. And how did you think about budget then, before sort of driving into the campaigns themselves then? Kite is a kind of newish market or a new type of business to you, perhaps then. How would you think about apportioning the budget to those different channels? So I think there's a couple of ways to think about this. One is what's the kind of minimum you need to be spending to get meaningful data. And ironically, with almost all of these channels, performance-led, the more spend, the more data, the better the algorithm can optimize because it's all machine learning based, right? That was one aspect is like, you know, what's the minimum we need to spend to validate and drive growth from them? But then the second was, you know, modeling it out. So, you know, what's the conversion rate? What's the target? How many sales qualified leads do we need? How many app store installs do we need? You know, how much merch do they need to be selling on average? What's the max kind of bid that we can go for? And how much traffic do we need to hit that target volume? Mm. Then you model that out because different channels have different nuances, you know, like hold outbound is much more quality than quantity because you're limited on how many you can send. You need to really hyper-personalize it. And it's really suited for kind of higher value prospects of, say, annual contract value of 10K plus, even 50K plus. Mm. So that was not suitable for the solopreneur. We're not going to go cold outbound campaign to solopreneurs who are just starting out, right? Mm. So different channels had different nuances, which meant different targets. So the metrics for those audiences and those channels differ. So you're not using the same model where like Facebook and Google that has a lot more similarity than those two channels to say called outbound to do. Mm. But fundamentally, it's all about reach to conversion, right? How many people see it of the relevant target audience and how many of them become paying customers at the end of the day. Mm. The more reach you have for your target audience, the more conversions you're going to have as long as your funnel is right and your message is right. Great. And you talked about some of the metrics throughout this conversation, but when you were talking to the sort of Kite leadership team then, what metrics were you typically tracking and talking to them about? Yeah, I'm a full funnel. So my weekly reporting would go end to end. You know, how much traffic we drove, from which channel, mm. the experiments that we're running, the creatives, the copy, the different audiences. These are the funnels that we're testing. This is a tech stack that we're implementing. But yeah, fundamentally, it came down to Shopify app install volumes, qualified leads. I think, you know, awareness and brand building is a pivotal part. We were also doing SEO, which I forgot to mention. Mm. SEO is a funny one because it's not an ideal channel for a company that has hard targets and tight timelines because SEO takes time. And it's also more ambiguous with how it's going to perform. But we actually did get a really great result for them. We managed to rank very high and highly relevant to print on demand, etc., So SEO performed well, and that's a completely different animal than the others. But, you know, metrics around good new pieces of content and backlink acquisition and, you know, where were we featured and which publications and, you know, what was the impression reach for those publications and how many people viewed it and saw it. So there were different metrics for different channels and different quirks that we'd report as well. Great stuff. And what sort of tools were you typically using then to help you with this? SEO, we were using Href to kind of keep track of a ranking I think Facebook ads at the time, I think it was Ad Espresso. I called Outbound. I think it was Outbound.io that we were using. We had Google Analytics, Google Tag Manager. Tracking with this was a real nightmare. It was probably one of the biggest challenges with this project. 
because of the limitation of conversion tracking on Shopify, because you couldn't tie the cookie from the click on the channel because it goes to Shopify ecosystem and they don't pass on that data. Oh, I see. And then the backend API and trying to plug that in was really tricky. So actually converting below that point in the funnel was a nightmare. Like we spent many, many painful hours with the developers and we had like lots of hiccups, like double counting and triple counting. And it's quite technically specialist and quite complex. Mm. I don't know if we actually managed to crack it. I can't quite remember if we had. I'm not sure we actually managed to get like a satisfactory result. Attribution is really the bane of every performance marketer's life. Like I mentioned, we were using Drift for chat mm. and we were using WordPress. So a lot of different variants of WordPress. I think for landing pages, we were using Unbounce to test different variants of landing pages. I think we use BuiltWith for list building for the outbound for Shopify. No, it makes sense. Sort of coming back to the growth experiments that you were running then. You've got all these hypotheses, if you like, of what you think. How then do you decide which ones to do first? How does that sort of work through in your head? I guess it really comes down to values, ironically. I'm really big on egalitarian approach and holocratic principles. So I'm very fond of effectively democratic voting. So, you know, we'd brainstorm ideas, kind of discuss the idea. You know, what's your hypothesis behind the idea? What are you trying to test? Why? You make a bit of a case for it. Then different people kind of comment on it, like, yes, pros and cons and different ideas around it. And then just keep going round, round for that duration. And everyone's coming out with different ideas. Mm. Then you've got whatever, 5, 10, 20, 30 ideas, depending on the day. And if it's a Friday afternoon and the beer or if it's a Monday morning. <laughs> and people would say, okay, well, you know, you've got this many points that you can assign to the ideas, which ones. And then effectively the team would vote and we'd pick the ideas that we believed had the best chances of succeeding. Mm. And then we'd run it, deploy it. The key here really is the learn part is often not done properly from what I've observed. So learning, there has to be a synthesis. So if you ask people like, how are you learning? They're going to say, I'm reading a book or I'm reading online. You go and do you feel you're learning? Most people say, yeah, of course I'm learning. What do you mean? I'm reading all this content all the time. Mm. But are you reflecting on the content? Mm. If you don't have this process of reflection and there is no synthesis, there's actually no learning. Mm. So the key is to analyze the experiments that succeeded, but also the ones that failed and try and draw out common causes. Like what is a causality? What are the variables that we think is the reason that people like it? Mm. And sometimes it can be really granular. Like, well, we use the word money and we use the word cash. And for some reason, the word cash really seems to perform better in the US, but not in the UK. Why is cash different than money? And that could be like a really tangible, tactical, granular example. Other times it could be a lot harder, more ambiguous. You know, why is Google Ads with this audience and this creative set performing so differently than Facebook ads? And that's really, really hard because you don't know the state of mind for that audience or the need state or the intent behind the keyword. And there's more variables, so it's much harder to get insight. So really the key is to break it down into more discrete components and try and get more granular with what are the key levers that we can pull. Mm. And a lot of that comes from competitor copy and looking at the USPs and the feature set and looking and understanding the audience from customer interviews as to their journey and their needs. And The deeper you can go and the more data you can gather, the more insight you have that feeds into the quality of the ideation and experimentation process. Mm. And would you be always running one version of an experiment against another version, a bit like an A-B test, or would you have more running against each other? Yeah, usually a lot more than one, yeah. I think at one point on Facebook, we were running like 1,300 creatives, a lot of variants of tests, and 
somewhat subtle changes and somewhat gross. Generally, I like to make very big, different variants initially. Mm. So very dramatically different messaging, different audiences, and then the best performers double down and then progressively get more nuance. Common mistake I see is people start... Too narrow. Yeah, too narrow. You know, let's change the background on the JPEG from purple to red and see mm. if that changes anything. And you're like, you can change the whole landing page and it will only have a 0.3% difference. You really think that changing the color of the background is what's going to make the difference? That headline, that first sentence above the fold, it's like 95% of it. It's like people creating these ridiculously long landing pages. And I, you know, 95% of people aren't scrolling below the fold. A lot of the times, a lot of the cases that I see, mm. I've seen screaming fits around the use of a word in a sentence that's like three quarters down the page. And you kind of go like, why is that happening? Why is that possible? People are arguing about something so insignificant. And it's really simple. They don't know it's insignificant. For them, they believe that that is materially meaningful to the perception of the brand, to this like projected image, like their perception of how people perceive the brand and the image, that they're going to pay attention to that. Mm. Then when they start learning and understanding how human behavior operates, people don't read, they scan, they have a certain pattern of scanning. They really skim read. They're really looking for very specific words that highlight specific needs that they have that mean something to them. Mm. And people aren't going through this process of nitpicking on letters or words or font color or font shape and you know, and not belittling the significance of consistency because it is important and not belittling the importance of design either because it's actually the biggest contributing factor to conversion, ironically. There is a balance there between visual and copy and getting them right. But where the emphasis is on where and the journey and for what customer and how to think about that in a more meaningful way, the specialized skills, you know, that people do this day in, day out, conversion rate optimization experts, they really understand the theory, they really know these variables. And what happens is a lot of marketeers, because there's so many different skills and so many different tools and so many different things to learn and read, you can't be really good at everything. Mm. Sometimes I've seen arguments that really border on just plain silly because people don't understand what's significant. Is it your view sort of early on to get it shipped even if it's 80% there rather than really getting to the absolute detail like you talk about? 80% is like perfection and like growth experimentation. And yesterday, I saw a creative for a client, and I just said, this is unacceptable. Like, if you went live with this, I wouldn't be happy going live with it on my own profile or for Curve. If you did this for a client that just raised £15 million, pound and this is a quality you're producing, it's like, I ripped it to shreds. I gave him, like, nine different pieces of feedback about why it was wrong. Mm. And you're like, Why? Surely, if you're running lots of experiments, it needs to be rough and ready. And the answer was, who is the ICP, the ideal customer profile? Mm. And their ICP for this client was their target audience is rapid scale-ups. So businesses doing 20 to 50 mil plus annually a year. Okay, and who are you targeting in those companies? It's actually a very senior type of someone in the C-suite. And what is the standard expectation of that persona for this type of creative? Mm. There's a certain standard. And if you're not at that standard, what was the point of running an experiment that you knew was going to fail because it's not going to have the impact because it doesn't meet that minimum requirement of quality. Mm. So it doesn't make any sense. And then sometimes people get caught up in like the volume of experiments rather than the quality and meaning of the experiment. Mm. And it's actually better to run less experiments of better quality and more thought out than just running huge volumes of experiments. But it really depends on like, the scale of the data set and what is the channel 
and what are you doing there? Because like, if you look at the example of the email marketing Obama campaign, <laughs> changing the subject of the email, sending that to tens of millions of people, changing a few words there can generate millions of dollars difference in donation. Mm. That's a really great variable to really test the minutiae of on that channel for such a large data set. So yeah, do change a few words in that subject line because it's going to have such a big impact on your open rate. Mm. But when you don't have huge volume sets and you're more on the quality side and say B2B, you can't run that same approach to experimentation. They're both experimentations, but one of them is like high volume, rapid and iterative with lots of nuance. And the other is like slower, deeper and kind of, I guess, more well thought out. Mm. And they're just both legitimate for different audiences and different propositions. So, you know, what is the annual contract value for the proposition? What is that buyer's criteria? How are they thinking about it? Mm. So to answer the question, generally, if I can run the minimum good enough, mm. that is the ideal. It's always, what's the minimum good enough? But not minimum lazy, you know, it really has to be good enough. And that good enough, those two words together can't be good. Mm. It definitely can't be enough, mm-hmm. but it has to be good enough. Problem is good enough. You ask five people, do you get five different good enoughs? Right? And then that's where mm. if you talk to the designer, their good enough is pixel perfect because they work on pixel level. And then you talk to the CTO, they're like, yeah, just get it out there. We need data. You know, they're more numerical and they're more focused on the numbers. They don't really care. You look at the crypto websites now, like they're horrific. You look at like curved out or something and they're like, it's so unusable. And then you're like, why is that? It's because an engineer built it. Like they don't care about usability because for them, the thesis or the value isn't coming from a pretty experience. It's not coming from a pleasurable aesthetic. It's coming from the genius of what they've built, the engineering prowess to have created something innovative that's exceptional. And the problem is for the average person who doesn't see how the black box was built, they don't care. They just care about the packaging. You don't think around the engine of a car. Just want a car that looks pretty and that looks nicer than the neighbors, you know? Mm. It comes down to understanding your audience. And I think that's the crux of marketing. It's like empathy, actually. Yeah. And I think that's what makes growth marketing so interesting because it's the balance between the science, like you said earlier on, and things like the creative. I think that's what makes it super interesting, but also super hard. With Kite then, what was the outcome then, Oren, of all this? 273% increases in conversions and the Shopify app installs because of measurement is quite tricky to get direct ROI on channels. We generated huge amounts of content for them. I think at one point, 23% of qualified leads are coming from organic, so that we kind of did a great job on that. Mm. Generated a huge amount of them, marketing qualified leads, I think in the thousands for them, in tens of thousands on the paid channels. And we increased um, conversion rates, so we kind of had a nice increase, about 17% on the conversion rate from when we began to when we finished the incremental experimental tests. And they were generating progressively more sales. I think at one point they were doing like a million plus printed items per month. Mm. The revenue grew, I think, 10x. The problem is like, oh, wow, you did that? It's like, of course not. I had like eight or nine different people helping on just marketing. Yeah. And then marketing was just one component. You had the data scientists and you had the product guys and you had a great design team. Mm. There were so many moving parts to integrations and the product offering and quality and reviews. Like reviews were a really key part of the journey for the customer. Mm. There was a lot of variables outside of just growing awareness and driving people down the funnel. Mm. That Those metrics or those successes came from lots of different people doing lots of different stuff over a relatively long period in a relatively intense way. 
but yeah, the Kite Leadership team, they were really great. They were like very open-minded and creative with the way they think about problem solving. Mm. When we started, it was like really, really great atmosphere. Progressively, Kevin, they had had a new CEO. So then they had tracked down all the businesses they had purchased and all the 340 employees. Mm. So I think towards the end, they got a lot more bumpy. It wasn't the same way as it was when it had started. It's true for a lot of different projects. You know, we start, you're very excited, there's a lot of money to splash around and go and invest and experiment. Mm. Then it gets tighter and tighter and performance pressures increase. But a lot of it comes down to perception and education and opportunity cost and alternative cost. And there's a lot of political components in organizations as well. And, you know, these large ones, there's a lot of different moving parts. I think I was like eight layers away from the CEO or something. It's like huge, sprawling organization. So, you know, I don't really know what happened. You know, you don't know. Mm. You know, you hear stories or, you know, extrapolate. But at the end of the day, they, I think, sold it off to another company. And now I think it's owned by someone else. But yeah, I haven't really caught up with those guys in a while. But yeah, fantastic team, genuine entrepreneurs, really hands-on. You know, like in every organization, some people are fantastic and great. Some people are not as fantastic as and great. And you've got to pick the ones that you get on with well, that, you know, you rate and, you know, you get each other, you speak the same language. Good stuff. And for people who are sort of in growth marketing or perhaps taking a new job in this sort of setup, they're there to sort of help a business drive its revenue forward. What was the one or two learnings that you had from this project? Mm, Wow, there's a lot of learnings. (laughs) It's really hard to distill it down. I remember this one that was quite funny. When we did the Drift chatbot, there was like this massive buzz around the chatbot and success. And I remember we put it on. We were driving like hundreds of thousands of uniques a month. And it had a 3 to 5% engagement rate. Mm. And it was really abysmally low. You know, so few people actually engage with this little chat widget that we spent a lot of time designing the chat and really capturing the questions and answers and all of that. I guess the key here is, you really got to think about that sequential process and just validate it one step at a time rather than having that whole 10-step process and really working heavily from the end result backwards. Because we spent so much time on setting it all up that actually if we had just run it with something super simple and checked the open rate, mm. we would have seen it wasn't worth investing all that time and energy. Mm. And then we did something else where we forced people to open it. So that you go to a landing page, you click CTA button, call to action, and they click out and then it opens the bot. So they have to interact with it. And obviously then go up to 80%. And that was an interest in learning about the utilization. And then a lot of it was still actually, if you were trying to use it for lead gen, it started to get murky because a lot of people using it as customer service tool. Mm. And then you're like, well, I thought I'm building a lead gen tool and actually it's now becoming like this hybrid customer service. And then so I had to interact with both departments and one tool and start to have complexity that we weren't sure was actually really fundamentally beneficial. It was operational complexity that justify the cost. Mm. A lot of different learnings there. That was just one example of something I thought was quite interesting. I took a bit more conceptually there to broaden the learning so it's not just specific to drift and a chatbot. Mm. No, good stuff. Well, I've really enjoyed the chat, and It's been fantastic just to sort of listen to you and how you sort of work through that project from sort of start to finish. If people want to get hold of you, they've got more questions, they want to hire you, what's the best way than doing it, Oren? Well, I'm always at capacity, so hiring is a bit on the trickier <laughs> side, but I reckon, you know, I'm always happy to chat to people and get to know other interesting minds. The best way is probably LinkedIn, just send a connection request. I join the connect to most, pretty much anyone who doesn't spam me, and I'm pretty prolific on LinkedIn at the moment. So yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best through, and they can sign up to the email newsletter on the curve on the website curve with a k.co.uk 
effectively that's like a feeder into new blog content that's a curated resource you know we do put a lot of effort into producing really meaningful good quality blog content and that's not just me that's all the partners occur so we kind of operate a egalitarian law firm model with different specialists and different teams and they produce this well-crafted content so if people are interested in that then they can sign up to the newsletter as well fantastic Oren. i really appreciate your time Mate, a real pleasure So that's it for another episode of the Market Mentors podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a review as that helps the channel going forward. Until next time.